All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 22. And like I said, next week, Lord willing, uh, we will finish off uh, chapter 10 and also finish off this part, this section that we're in, this unit, if you will, that began in chapter 8, talking about things offered to idols. It's one of those things like where you ask the Apostle Paul a question and you almost feel like, you know, you have to be careful how you ask Paul a question because he's never going to give you a simple answer. It's like, hey, Paul, what about things offered to idols? Well, let me give you three chapters worth of answer. Okay, I'm going to tell you an answer, then I'm going to show you how I do it in my life, and then I'm going to give you a, a history lesson on the people of Israel, and then I'm going to finally bring it back around to idolatry, which is kind of what we see here uh, this morning. So as we make our way back here to 1 Corinthians 10, uh, we continue, as we continue our study through this book, we're now here in the middle, if you will, of chapter 10, as Paul now starts to bring his discussion on things offered to idols to a conclusion, as you can see with that word, therefore, there in verse 14, as we read this passage now. Uh, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? So if you, again, just a little bit of a recap, if you recall back in chapter 8, Paul introduces this subject of things offered to idols by telling them that knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Idols are nothing, therefore food offered to idols is okay. There's nothing off limits, technically speaking, in Christ. However, the practice or the principle of love that he says where love builds up dictates that if you have someone with a weak conscience and they see you eating meat offered to an idol, the principle of love says sacrifice your liberty for the sake of your brother. It is better that you suffer a little hurt to yourself than that your brother stumble in his walk in faith. So then after a lengthy discussion on his personal practice in chapter 9 again, Paul goes to great lengths to describe how he becomes a servant to all, that he may win some, that he uh, works to win the race, he runs to win the race, that he beats his body so that he can be disciplined and exercise self-control. All these things Paul does, he does not make use of his freedom. He sacrifices his liberty for the sake of the gospel. That's Paul's motivating uh, focus in his ministry. And then he tells us then here uh, how the last time what we saw how the 
ancient Israelites, right? You know, the, the, uh, that, that Exodus generation. He says, our fathers, those who were in the Exodus generation, how they showed themselves to be disqualified. They didn't run the race well. They didn't discipline themselves. They didn't exercise self-control in the matters of idolatry and sexual immorality and all these things. They, they disqualified themselves. They lost the race. They did not enter the promised land. And Paul, that's why he brings that up. He's like, look, don't be like them. They're an example, but they are, they are an, a negative example. Don't be like them. You need to, to exercise discipline and self-control. So really, the passage we looked at last week, the first 13 verses, is a warning passage. It's a warning passage. There are several of these passages in the Bible that warn us to make sure that our calling and election is sure. Right? You can point to a number of passages in the book of Hebrews and Peter and so on and so forth to make sure that our calling and election is sure. And Paul's warning passage here is by way of typology, showing how what happened in Israel is a type, is an example for you. Don't do what they did. Run the race to win. So he says, take heed, right? That's what we saw. You know, all of that, you know, again, Paul, you know, sometimes, sometimes Paul gets to the point in a circuitous way. Sometimes Paul takes a little while to get to the point. So, you know, he, he gives all this example of Israel, and then he gets to his point in verse 12. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's the, that's the point he wants to get across to the, to the Corinthians. Don't be overconfident. Don't think because you've made a profession of faith that you can do whatever you want. Don't think you don't have to exercise discipline and self-control. You've got to watch out. You've got to watch out. There's all kinds of things in this world that are going to seek to cause you to stumble and cause you to trip up. You need to watch out. You need to watch where you put your feet. Take heed lest you fall. If you think you're standing and you're not standing on anything solid, you've got to watch out. Then he closes with some good news at the end that God is sovereign over the temptations that they face. God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability to bear it. Now, it's not beyond your ability to bear it in your own strength, right? It's beyond your ability to bear it in Christ's strength. That's, the temp- that's how God is sovereign over our temptations. If it was our ability to bear it, either we would fail or the temptation would be too weak. Right? I mean, I can only bear so much, but with Christ, you can, you can bear um, a lot of things. Of course, God is in control of when, where, how, who, and what your temptations are. And as we see here in verse 13, he provides a way of escape. He provides a way out. In other words, we won't ever face anything that is unique to us. We won't ever face anything that is beyond our ability with the help of the Spirit and the help of Christ to overcome. And we will never face anything in which there's no way of escape. That's good news. And it's challenging because that means when we do sin, who's to blame? (laughs) Right? Ourselves. (laughs) Because the way of escape is there. So the way of is out is available if we rest and trust in him and the strength he provides, not our own strength. So now that brings us to the passage we just read, verses 14 through 22. Finally, he brings this discussion back to the topic of idols, which is 
what began the whole discussion, things offered to idols. So now he brings it back to idols here. And food offered to idols. And Paul is going to warn them to flee idolatry. Actually, it's not a warning, it's a command. Flee idolatry. Flee it. Run away. Those things we said are nothing are not really nothing. We'll get to that when we get to that part in the passage. But the temptation the Corinthians need to watch out for is engaging in fellowship and communion with demons. That's what they are in trouble of falling into. That is the temptation that is before them. That is a temptation that they don't think is anything, at least the knowledgeable ones. And if you do, you provoke the Lord to jealousy. And last time I checked, that is usually not a good thing, (laughs) to provoke the Lord to jealousy or anger. So starting in verse 14, after the warning to take heed lest they fall, Paul cuts right to the point in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Now, note that word there, beloved, right? That's a term of endearment. Paul is addressing, as he has in, throughout this letter, as he began this letter, he's addressing the Corinthians as his dearly beloved children in the faith, as Christians, as saints, as those set apart for God, as those who are who are called, as, he saw, as we saw in chapter 1. He says, Beloved, look, this, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to you as a father to his children. I'm speaking to you as one who loves you, as one who is concerned about your sanctification, your well-being. I'm going to have to sometimes speak harshly to you. Flee sexual idolatry. He's addressing this, this group of struggling Christians in this struggling church as his beloved children of the faith. Now we know from our study last week, when we kind of looked at the brief history that, of Israel that Paul outlines here, that they struggled with idolatry. Right? The Israelites struggled with idolatry. It was a very short period of time, right, from the time they left Egypt to the time they got to the base of Mount Sinai, that they're making the, the, the golden calf, right? I mean... That was probably a couple of months time, the same generation that saw the ten plagues, the same generation that saw the Red Sea split in two and saw it drown the entire Egyptian army, they thought it was a good idea to build a golden calf and say, this is your God. So they struggled with idolatry. Forty days separated from Moses at the foot of Mount Sinai and the, and the Israelites were making their own gods. Now, my warning to us is we should not think that this is just distinct or unique to the Israelites, right? They're not the only ones who can fall rapidly into idolatry, right? How foolish could they be? Well, how easy for us is it to fall into idolatry? John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. (laughs) Not I-D-L-E idol, as in it's not doing anything. No, it's a factory that produces idols, things to worship, things that we put in place of God. And that's exactly what idolatry is. Idolatry basically is putting something, anything, in the place of God in our lives. Something or anything in the place of God in our lives. Westminster Shorter Catechism, which was produced sometime around 1647, 1648. Uh, It's like the Heidelberg 
Um, some say it's better, some, uh, I don't say that necessarily, but question and answer one of the Shorter Catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, asked the question, what is the chief end of man? What is man's primary purpose in life? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That is our purpose. We were made to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. In other words, we were made to worship the Creator. Now, after the fall, we still worship. We just don't worship the Creator all the time. Right? If you recall, when we studied the book of Romans, we saw this tendency of the men in Rome to worship anything but God. Right? Romans 1, if you want, you could flip over there. Romans 1, verses 20 through 25. After Paul saying that the wrath of God has been, is being revealed against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in their unrighteousness, Paul says in Romans 1, verse 20, For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So, we are without excuse. God is evident in the world. We have zero excuses to deny God. 21, verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him. Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Fallen man does not glorify God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So if someone tells you, I'm not religious, don't buy it. Man is a religious animal. Man is made to worship. If we're not worshiping God, we're going to be worshiping something. And if someone tells you, no, 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 I'm not a religious person, I'm a complete and utter atheist, I don't believe in any of that stuff, then they probably worship themselves. All right? And then you've got others who will worship the earth, right? The, the, the green movement, the environmentalists. The earth is sacred. You've got the, the people. The animals are sacred. You've got all of these things that worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. We are religious. And if we don't worship God, we're going to worship something else in its place. When God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, now I'm not here to say that the Ten Commandments are necessarily in any order, but certainly the first one has to be important. And the first one is, you shall have no other gods before me. That's number one on the list, okay? Number one on the list, and that's the one we violate all the time. Idolatry is a violation of the very first rule God ever gave. It's the top of the list for a reason. We certainly don't want to break any of the commandments, which we fail to do, by the way, but also we certainly don't want to break number one. We've talked about it before, but idolatry is more than just bowing down to some wooden or metal image that you've made. 
and worshiping little wooden or metal statues. If you have uh, the hymnals there, I invite you to turn to the Heidelberg Catechism in the back of the hymnal. I've got my own little special collection here of creeds and catechisms, but Heidelberg Catechism, question 94 and 95. This is what um, the catechism goes through an exposition of the Ten Commandments. And the way it's typically structured is they'll ask what is, what is required in, the, in whatever commandment, and then they'll say how do we, how do we fulfill that, or what is, um, you know, they may come up with some other questions involved there. But question 94 talks about the first commandment. What does the Lord require in the first commandment? And the answer is that I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry, sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or to other creatures, that I rightly know the only true God, trust Him alone, and look to God for every good thing humbly and patiently, and love, fear, and honor Him with all my heart. In short, that I renounce all created things rather than go against God's will in any way. Then you kind of, well, what's idolatry? Well, that's question 95. What is idolatry? Answer. Idolatry is having or inventing something in which one trusts in place of or alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. So again, idolatry is more than just I've got a statue and I'm bowing to the statue or I'm praying to Mary or I'm praying to Zeus or I'm praying to whatever. It is anything in which one trusts or places in, alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word. In fact, the shorter catechism in question 47, this is Westminster again, when it asks what is forbidden in the first commandment, they say the first commandment forbids the denying or not worshiping and glorifying the true God as God and our God and the giving of that worship and glory to any other which is due to him alone. So again, according to the Shorter Catechism, uh, the first commandment forbids giving anything in all creation the honor, worship, and glory that is due to God alone. This basically means we give anything but God first place in our lives. If you want a shorter answer... That would be the Carl Catechism. What is idolatry? Giving anything but God first place in our lives. So Paul says to flee idolatry. Flee it. Run away. <laughs> be like brave Sir Robin in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Run away. He's running away. He's chickening out. He's running away. If you don't know that reference, don't worry about it. <laughs> I just, I have Mark Bailey back there shaking his head in righteous indignation. <laughs> no worries. What's that? Yeah, yeah. I've got, I've got maybe one or two people who might know what I'm talking about here. Idolatry is not something you want to be unsure about, 
okay? It's not something you want to flirt around the edges or, or kind of mix in with, okay? You want to run away. You want to, in the words of Monopoly, you want to not pass go, do not collect $200. You want to flee idolatry. You don't want to be in the same zip code as idolatry. Again, look to no further than the example of Israel in verses 7 through 10 of the chapter we just looked at in 1 Corinthians 10. The first uh, sin that Paul highlights in verses 7 through 10 in the example of Israel is their idolatry at the foot of Sinai. And in fact, the book of Judges, in a, in a sense, can be considered like a case study of what happens when you flirt with idolatry. Because there are seven cycles in Judges of, hey, you know, we're in the land, and then all of a sudden we start worshiping other gods, then God sends uh, a nation against us to oppress us, and then all of a sudden we're like, oh, God, help us, help us, help us, please. And then God sends a judge to deliver them, and then he judge delivers them, and then there's peace for a certain number of years, and then the cycle repeats. And it gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gets worse. It's not so much a cycle as a downward spiral. Kind of like when you flush your toilet. It's like it goes down, down, down into the drain. It's a case study in what happens when you flirt with and mess with idolatry, when you don't give God first place in your lives. And that word there, flee, it occurs 31 times in the New Testament. Paul uses it four times. And he uses it twice in Corinthians. The first time we saw it was in 1 Corinthians 6.18 when Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Don't. This is not one you want to mess with. This is not one that there's any kind of form of Christian liberty that you can excuse with this. This is just one you want to avoid. Just avoid it. Why flirt with it? Why mess around with it? Why skate around the edges? Just get away from it. Flee it. And the reason he says that is because don't you know that your bodies are a temple to the Holy Spirit? So when you commit sexual immorality, you are in a sense desecrating the temple of God. What happens to people who desecrate the temple of God? Not good things, right? <laughs> Not good things. And we'll see here in a moment that idolatry, flirtation with it, is essentially fellowshipping with demons. That's what Paul's going to say. So that's the warning. right? Was it, is that what I called it? The warning? The command? Now he's going to give two examples that illustrate what he's about to say in verse, verses 19 and 20. So in verses 15 through 18, he gives a couple of, of examples that lead up to his main point in verse 20. But before he can make his, his main point... Paul has to provide these illustrations to show what he is going, he's building a case here, essentially is what he's doing. He's building a case that's going to end in verse 20. And the illustration comes from two practices. One is the Christian practice of communion or the Lord's Supper, and the other is the Jewish practice of, of offerings at the altar. So Paul first appeals to the sensible nature of the Corinthians, right? In verse 15, I speak, to, I speak as to wise men, Judge for yourselves what I say. Now, I've read some commentaries on this. Some think he's being sarcastic. I can kind of see that. Oh, I speak as to wise men, people who seem to know you're so knowledgeable, your knowledge puffs up. The Corinthians pride themselves on their knowledge, wisdom, and Paul here 
can begin this section by saying, well, we all possess knowledge, you know. Um, but Paul could also just be appealing to the fact that the Corinthians were indeed a knowledgeable group of folks. In fact, Paul begins the letter in chapter 1 by saying, you are enriched in everything by him in all utterance and knowledge. So in another sense, Paul could be just saying, hey, look, you're sensible people. Let's reason together about this. Let's reason together about this. Let's, let's speak as, as wise, sensible people. I could see it either way. Depending on what day you ask me, I can think Paul's being sarcastic. And another day I could be thinking Paul's trying to reason. Maybe he's being both. But the point is, Paul's first example is going to come from the Christian practice of the Lord's Supper. Look at verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion... Uh, depending on ESV, does it say participation? Okay. Communion of the blood of Christ, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Now, there's a very, very, very important word there. I kind of let it slip which one it was, right? It's the word communion, the word participation, depending on your translation. It's the Greek word koinonia, koinonia. In Greek, the word means a bunch of things. It defies a simple definition. It's one of those words that's so important that it captures a range of meanings, all of which are very important. Uh, various English translations I saw, at least looking at, let's see, one, two, three, four. I looked at eight different translations, and they used three different words. So if you have a King James or New King James, you'll see communion. If you have an English standard or new international, you'll see participation. And if you, see, if you have anything else besides those four, you'll see the word sharing. Sharing, participation, communion. In the New Testament, koinonia appears 20 times and is variously translated, at least in the authorized version, as fellowship, communion, communication, distribution, contribution, you can kind of see the range of this word and its meanings. Now in the church, right, we celebrate the Lord's Supper, or is it sometimes called communion? Now I belabor this point because the celebration of the Lord's Supper, in the celebration of the Lord's Supper, we share, we participate, we commune with the body and blood of Christ. Now not in a Roman Catholic sense, right? The Roman Catholic sense says, by the, a miracle of transubstantiation during the consecration of the bread and the wine, it magically turns into the literal body and blood of Christ so that we all become, in a sense, and I'm using this pejoratively, we, in a sense, become cannibals. Right? I mean, that was one of the earliest charges of the Christian church back in the ancient days is that they're cannibals. They're eating the body and blood of somebody. But we don't mean it in that way. Nor do we mean it in a Lutheran way. Lutherans don't believe in transubstantiation. They believe in something called consubstantiation, which means that the body and blood of Christ are somehow present in, with, under, through, beside the bread and the wine. Nor do we mean it in a bare memorial sense in which all we're doing here is just remembering the sacrifice of Christ. It is that. But it's more than that. When we participate in the Lord's Supper, we are, by faith, partaking of the body and blood of Christ. Now again, if you've got your hymnals, 
ready. <laughs> We're doing a little confessional study here. Belgic Confession, which I believe in the hymnal comes after the Heidelberg. Uh, Belgic Confession, Article 35. Now, it's a fairly long article. I'm not going to read all of it. Okay, if you have that available, is there a paragraph that begins something? My, what I have here in this book may not con correspond exactly to what you have there in the hymnal. Is there a paragraph that begins something along the lines of to represent to us this spiritual and heavenly bread? Okay. So starting there, to represent to us this spiritual and heavenly bread, Christ has instituted an earthly, invisible bread as the sacrament of his body and wine as the sacrament of his blood. He did this to testify to us that just as we truly, sorry, just as truly as we take and hold the sacraments in our hands and eat and drink it in our mouths, by which our life is then sustained, so truly we receive into our souls for our spiritual life, the true body and blood of Christ, our only Savior. We receive these by faith, which is in the hand and mouth of our souls. Now it is certain that Jesus Christ did not prescribe his sacraments for us in vain, since he works in us all he represents by these holy signs, although the manner in which he does it goes beyond our understanding and is incomprehensible to us, just as the operation of God's Spirit is hidden and incomprehensible. Yet we do, we do not go wrong when we say that what is eaten is Christ's own natural body and what is drunk is his own blood. But the manner in which we eat it is not by the mouth, but by the Spirit, through faith. In that way, Jesus Christ remains always seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven, but never, he never refrains on that account to communicate himself to us through faith. And then if you want, you can also flip over to Heidelberg again, Lord's Day 28, questions 75 and 76. I know it's, today, I think, is Lord's Day 27, so we'll actually look at these next week as well. But Q&A 75 and 76. Let's just look at 76, just for sake of time. Question 76, what does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his poured out blood? Answer, it means to accept with a believing heart the entire suffering and death of Christ and in this way to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But it means more. Through the Holy Spirit who lives both in Christ and in us, we are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. And so although he is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, and we, live, we forever live on and are governed by one spirit as members of our body are by one soul. Keep Heidelberg handy one more time. We're going to look at it in just a moment. <laughs> Communion is a spiritual meal in which there is a sacramental union, if you will, between the sign and the thing signified. The sign is the bread and the wine. That is the sign in communion. We eat bread, we drink wine. And there is a union between that and the thing signified, which is the actual body and blood of Christ. Which is why in John chapter 6, Jesus says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And people are like, ugh, I don't want to do that. It sounds gross. 
But he says earlier, if you do not come to me in faith, then you're not of my own. So this idea of eating his flesh, drinking his blood is, is equated to coming to Christ in faith. He's not saying literally eating my flesh and drinking my blood. He is saying, come to me in faith. You have to ingest me. You have to take me in. You have to become one with me in a sense. Now back to the Apostle's point. When we share in the sacramental meal of the Lord's Supper, we are sharing in the body and blood of Christ. Moreover, not only are we sharing in a communion with the Lord Jesus Christ, but also in a communion with one another. Look at verse 17. For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. We are joined together as one body of believers through the one bread that we partake of, the body of Christ. And this speaks to that wonderful, glorious doctrine of the communion of saints, uh, which we don't have time to fully develop here. But in the Lord's Supper... Uh, is a spiritual meal that unites all believers into one body. The body of Christ, that is the church. When we partake of one bread, that is the sense, that is what unites us, and one of the things that unites us as one church. So that's the first example. The second example comes from Old Testament sacrificial practices in verse 18. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partaking of the altar? And that phrase there, Israel after the flesh, just means Jews, Israelites, actual Israelites. And there's a similar, there's a similar communion with the priest and the offer of the sacrifice in the Old Testament sacrificial system. I was going to read some passages out of Leviticus, but I'll just summarize them. Basically, during the peace offering, the thank offering, the offer would bring his offering to the, to the, uh, to the uh, door of the tabernacle, and then the priest would take it, slay it, offer some of it on the altar, and then the rest of it they would share in a meal together. In a sense, a communal meal. And they are partaking of that sacrificial offering as well. So now, Paul has laid out his two applications. He's built his case What's the point of all of this that he is saying? Well, we need to look now at verses 19 and 20. So Paul says, what am I saying then? Because that's what I think a lot of us would be thinking after he's just finished making all these points. What are you saying, Paul? Well, I'll tell you what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. That an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything. Rather, that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God, and I do not want you to have fellowship, koinonia, communion with demons. So Paul in, 19, in verse 19 is responding to any potential charges of contradicting himself because in chapter 8, verse 4, Paul said an idol is nothing. And an idol has no existence. So he's not saying, look, what I'm saying in all this is not that the idol is anything. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that worshiping in the temple of an idol or any form of idolatry is not worship to a false deity or a pagan god because there are no gods but the one true God. But demons use idols and idolatry to deceive the masses and to keep them from the gospel that would save their lives. 
We've said it in past lessons and past sermon series. We know that Satan and his minions, the demons, are behind world governments and world leaders. We saw that, right? The beast in Revelation is a, is, is, resembles the dragon. He's, he has the power of the dragon. We saw it in Daniel with the, you know, the prince of, of Persia is a, is a demonic entity. We know that Paul says that, that there are you know, principalities and powers and authorities in this world. So we know that Satan and his minions are behind world governments and world leaders, influencing them to evil. We know that Satan and his minions use false signs and wonders to deceive, as Jesus would say, if possible, even the elect. In fact, going back to Revelation of chapter 13, the second beast, the beast from the earth, the false prophet, he has one job. The false prophet's job is to make people worship the first beast. It's like, you've got one job, and I'm going to do it, and I'm going to deceive you to worship the first beast. He does so by means of great signs. He does so through deception, for his voice is that of the dragon. You know, the dragon is Satan, so he lies, he deceives. So when the Corinthians participate, when they have communion in pagan temples to, to eat meat offered to idols, they are fellowshipping with, they are communing with, they are participating with demons. Now, to go back to chapter 8, when he says, you know, food offered to idols, there, there are several ways, and we're going to see this next time too as well, there are several ways to get that meat offered to idols. One is you could buy it in the market and there was no problem. The other is you could be invited to someone's home who offers meat that was bought at the market, which would be no problem. The other would be to actually go into the temple where that meat was offered and eat the meal there. And Paul is saying, when you do that, that is, in a sense, participating with that pagan ritual. And when you do that, you are participating in the work of demons. Now, do you see why this would be a problem? <laughs> right? The typical Corinthian believer celebrates the Lord's Supper on Sunday and then has communion with the body and blood of Christ. And then on Monday, he goes to the pagan temple, has a meal that is offered to him, and finds out that it was offered to idols, and now he has communion with the demons behind the idols. To quote Jim Lovell from Apollo 13, Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> and Paul brings it home in verses 21 and 22. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? You can't do this. <laughs> you can't mix the two. That's why He says flee idolatry. Flee anything that even resembles idolatry. Don't have anything to do with it. You cannot fellowship with Christ and then fellowship with demons. Jesus in Matthew 6 says you cannot serve two masters. And there he's talking about Jesus or money. Here, you know, Paul is saying you cannot have communion in two places. You're either communing with the body and blood of Christ or you're communing with demons. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot be a slave of Christ and then fellowship with demons. And if we do, what happens? Well, Paul says you provoke God to jealousy. This is not some 
fallen, petty, human form of jealousy. This is divine jealousy. Exodus 20, verse 5, when uh, God says, do not make any idols, do not make any graven images, for you know, the Lord your God is a jealous God. He alone is worthy of His glory. He will share His glory with no other. Isaiah. So idolatry is essentially, as we've been saying, taking the praise and worship that is rightfully due to God, for He alone is worthy, and then giving it to another. And since there is no God but the one true God, uh, worship that worship then goes on to something that is a creature, that is not God. When you don't serve the one true God, you are serving something that He made. And then we run the risk of doing what the Israelites did during the Exodus. They stirred up God, they stirred up His jealousy in God, and provoked Him to anger, and God judged them for it. I mean, they were not stronger than God. I mean, that's like the... the, the the most rhetorical of rhetorical questions, right? Are we stronger than God? No. <laughs> right? No, of course not. We're not stronger than God. Now, while this situation in Corinth is different than it is today, the problem is the same, right? Again, I re- bring to your mind, Calvin said our hearts are idol factories. We make idols. Idolatry is more than just sitting in a temple eating meat offered to an idol. So the question then for us then is, what are the idols in our lives? What are the things in our lives that steal or rob or put other things in the place of God and steal His rightful praise and worship? What are those things in our lives? What are those things in your lives that are not God in which you glorify and enjoy forever? We all have idols. We all have things that we put in place of God. Maybe we don't like to acknowledge it, but I think if you were to take a a serious inventory of your heart, if you were to sit in prayer by yourself with your Bible open and pray to God, reveal to me the idols in in my heart, get ready. Have a pen and paper to be ready to write those down because God will answer that prayer. Because God will not share His glory with another. We all have idols, and we all need to repent of those things and turn our hearts and minds to God who alone is worthy. Well, that's this passage. Next time, we will finish, Lord willing, uh, chapter 10. And in fact, you're going to get a bonus verse. You're going to get chapter 11, verse 1. (laughs) As a bonus, because I just love you guys so much. I'm going to give you one extra verse. But we'll finish this section next time.